Welcome to the Nopalera podcast, a place where I share the journey of building my company from the ground up, as well as the stories of others in our community. I am your host, Sandra Velasquez, founder of Nopalera, a culture-forward brand that celebrates and elevates culture. Aside from making great products, we are cultural storytellers with a mission to inspire our community to stand in their worth. In this podcast, you will hear a mix of solo and guest episodes around the entrepreneurial realities of building a company. I launched Nopalera from my Brooklyn apartment with no outside funding while working three jobs, raising my child in the middle of the pandemic at the age of 44. Thank you for joining me on this journey. I hope it inspires you to live boldly. If you are a beauty brand founder that is trying to get into wholesale accounts, this episode is for you. One of the top two questions I have received from fellow founders is, how do I get into wholesale? This episode will give you some tips and truths you need to get your foot in the door. Priscilla Camacho is a sales veteran of 17 years. Having started her career in fashion in 2005, she pivoted to beauty and fragrance in 2016 with the role of brand manager and commercial director at Byredo. In 2018, she moved from New York City to LA to start her own boutique agency, now called Equally Distributed. Her clients have included Voicemails, Nopaleta, Deadcool, Salt and Stone, Skylar, Noto Botanics, and several others. I'm super excited for you to hear this conversation. Let's dive in. Priscilla, welcome to the Nopaleta podcast. How are you? Hi, thank you. I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm so excited to dive into this conversation because as we were just chatting before we started recording, the two top questions I get are, how do I find a designer or how much does branding cost? And then the second one is, how do I find a sales rep? So you are a sales rep. Do you call yourself a sales rep, sales agent? What is your official title? Oh, that's funny. Um, I don't call myself a sales rep, honestly, because I think it's more than that. I like to call myself almost like your third party VP of sales or sales leader, whatever it might be, because I'll act on behalf of brands. And I like to really kind of make myself a part of the team um, and really understand everything about it. Because I think sales rep has a bad rep, actually. And I don't really want to be associated with that in that way, but also no offense taken to it. So if I had to name it myself, no, I don't use that those words or that phrase. Okay. A product pusher, maybe. (laughs) Product pusher. I love that. I love that. No, but it's so true because, you know, I am a former sales agent, rep, whatever you want to call me, but it's true. You have to, to take on this role. You have to, you're part of the team. You have to know everything about the brand because you are the face. Like some people only talk to you, right? They don't even talk to the founders. They never meet the founders. It's just you, right? So you are representing the brand. Mm -hmm. So that's fair. Yeah. So I'm dying to learn about how you became this person, right? Like why, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, why you chose this path. If you chose it, did you follow into it? But first I want to start with the big questions that everyone wants to know, which is if I am a brand and I'm looking for a sales agent person, uh, Mm -hmm. product pusher, how do I find one? Is it possible to find one? Where do, where do you all hide? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's hard. It's probably kind of hard to find us, to be honest, or at least to find the right person. The easiest way, though, is to check some resources in primarily New York and L.A. I would say start there because that's where most of us are, being the two kind of largest metropolitan areas in the country and where all of the showrooms are. So you can do a couple things. You can start going to trade shows. You can visit the different showrooms showrooms hire many agents that work on their behalf and is really aligning with the right one. I'd say 
both from the product perspective, like what else do they sell? Are they going to understand your products? And then what's their personality like? Do you want them being that face of the brand? Because, you know, I think it's the brand's choice too. Who do you want to be out there representing your brand? It makes a big difference. That's such a good point. And can you just like name drop, what are some of these trade shows that yeah. where, you, where you all hide? <laughs> so it depends on like what kind of product you have, but some big ones for Nopaleta, for instance, um, I love one called Shop Object. It's in kind of the home and gift show. The one that was bigger than that is called New York Now. Um, there are big markets in Atlanta and Dallas and Las Vegas. And then I participate in a number of the markets in Fashion Week because a lot of you know, the stores that I like to work with are not purely fashion stores, but concept stores. And it's a full lifestyle they're creating. So getting into that lifestyle crowd as well. Um, and actually, I started my sales career in fashion. So I have a long history in the fashion space. <laughs> okay. I want to hear more about that. That is awesome. Now let's flip it from the other perspective. Because, you know, brands, and I got asked this question all the time when I was a sales rep, when I worked for Van Leeuwen, other brands tried to hire me. They thought that if they could just offer me the job or give me money that I would say yes. And the Mm -hmm. reality is that you, as the product pusher face of the brand, also get to decide who you want to work with. So like, tell me what are the things that you look for when you are selecting, right? Because like, let's be clear, everyone, you can't just give someone money and have them go do this thing for you. Like they have to want to work with you. (laughs) Yeah. What do I, that's a good question because I've had to be really more deliberate about that lately um, or in the past few years, I should say, because I do get a lot of people coming to me and I want to help everyone, but I can't, you know what I mean? I just don't have the time to help everybody and I don't have the stores that are going to buy that product. So I try to give resources to others, but what I look for personally um, are things that I'm passionate about. So being a Latina, I want to support other founders, BIPOC founders, female founders. And one of the frustrations I felt while working in industry was that there was a lack of us, you know, from the beginning of my career, I I worked for, you know, European luxury brands for a long time. I always felt a little out of place. And by the time I had enough experience under my belt, I sort of thought, let me do this on my own because I want to help the others. You know, I am kind of an other. So let's create some space there and bring our products, vision, creativity to the shelves of the major retailers everybody wants to be in. Yes. And I love that. And can I just like dig a little deeper? So when you were working for these bigger luxury brands, did I hear correctly that you, were you the only Latina often on the team? Often, yes. Or one of maybe less than a handful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, in the early years, I'm trying to think back. Until I worked at Philip Lim, it was a very diverse team at Philip Lim. But before then, I think I was the only one. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, yeah, sure. I'm thinking back. I was the only one. So that says a lot. Let's go back there. So did you go to school for fashion? Is that what you thought you were going to be? Like, I'm going to work in the fashion industry? Okay. Uh, No, I went to New York because I loved fashion and things, but I went to NYU and I actually started as a chemistry major and I thought I was going to, I don't know, do something with science. And then I was super bored in my classes. So I switched Mm -hmm. to a journalism major. And it was through some internships that I had at fashion magazines and like women's magazines that I was like, oh, I can have a career in fashion without being a designer, for instance, uh, myself. So I wasn't sure exactly what part of the industry I'd fall into. So when I graduated, I just, 
I created what I now realize was like a manifestation list, but I didn't have that language available to me back then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of like what I wanted. So I just listed companies, things I wanted to do in the role and applied like everywhere. And I was a fortunate enough to have like a friend of a friend introduce me to someone at Prada and I was brought on as a wholesale assistant at Prada. So that was my very first job out of college, which I now feel pretty fortunate actually to have because that was quite the training. <laughs> That's a pretty good first job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it fell. I actually almost um, turned it down because it was a sales job. And I was more hoping to get like a merchandising job or something like in the press office, communications, marketing. Mm. And I was like, oh, this, you know, does that mean I have to like go around selling things? <laughs> um, and so I almost turned it down. But then I realized, no, when you work at Prada, you don't go around selling things. Everyone's knocking on your door to buy it and you say no a lot, <laughs> mm. which was a whole different thing. But it wasn't what I thought. I thought I had to like, this is sort of true later, but in different sense, like travel with a suitcase full of things and sell products, which you kind of do in like the format of a trunk show. But um, I end up really enjoying it and like seeing how the whole business side of things works. So um, for me, I treat it more like business minded and growth and business development always, I think, than sales. Yes. And I love that. So like, what are like the key learnings? Because Prada is a really good first job, right? Yeah. So what are the key learnings from that experience? Like this, we're talking about like a massively established legacy brand. So like, mm -hmm. what are the key learnings that you took away from that? That obviously you weren't even thinking you were going there for that, right? You were trying to be work on like more of the maybe journalism or writing yeah. know, merchandising side. But what did you gain from that? Oh, like, I think the biggest message was like the presentation of a brand and how much brand matters and protecting it because to start at a Prada you know obviously they're very strict about everything I was told kind of what color nail polish I could wear I had to I had a wow. nose ring I had to take it out because I was the face of the brand I was showing it to stores so they didn't want someone with a nose ring and I was a little mad about that back then but I don't want a <laughs> nose ring today so it's fine and I understand it now you know there's still some things I think are kind of wrong about those rules of course but that's part of my frustration at my gripe because I would never ask anyone if I had a brand to take out something that was part of them. <laughs> mm -hmm, but, mm -hmm. but it does still reinforce this idea of branding and what they're trying to present to everybody, what their brand means. Presentation matters. Oh mm -hmm. my God, it matters so much. Yeah. I'm kind of jumping around here because there's just so much interesting stuff here. Now, so you're at Prada. Where did you go next? So the funny thing about Prada is when I joined, like all of my bosses kind of left and I was one of the very few people being very junior there. So I got to do things I wouldn't do, like go to Milan and do market there with like the VPs. So eventually one of the um, head salespeople left to Mark Jacobs and essentially took me with her. So um, my next job was at Mark Jacobs. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so are you still doing, was it now, are you officially like in wholesale? <laughs> like yes. At that, point? at that point I was okay. um, an account executive. So, or junior account executive. So I was handling the boutique business at that point um, for the handbag collection, which at that time, I'm going to like age myself a little bit here if people know references <laughs> to Mark Jacobs, but it was during the stand bag craze. So it was a wildly successful period in that company. And we were super busy and it was a lot of fun. Okay, so your journalism dreams and chemistry dreams are dead. You are officially in like high level premium wholesale brands, right? Yeah. You're wholesaling with premium brands. Yes. 
and then you worked for others, right? And I know, like, I know you yeah. was like working for Byredo, right? So when right. did you cross over from fashion into, I guess, like fragrance? Um, in 2016. Or beauty, technically. Yeah, I was working at Philip Lim. I was head of sales at Philip Lim for women's apparel. And I got a call from a recruiter, actually, for the position at Byredo, which um, was essentially like commercial director, you know, head of sales. I, I was like a one-person show in the U.S. Um, handling it. And that brand has pretty strong ties to fashion and different, you know, friends who are in fashion, influencers. They have a leather handbag uh, line. So they liked my background in like leather goods and women's apparel. And when I got into the role, I realized just how similar it actually is. It's not fashion. So it was adjusting to a different like cadence of kind of product launches and how to treat seasonality. Um, that was the biggest adjustment, but that's pretty easy. So once I figured that out, it functions in a lot of the same ways. And actually, I preferred it in a way because you have the same product that you get to put out there over and over again and have people love it and, you know, just have that tried and true customer where fashion, it's every season you kind of come out with something new and there's not yes. there's not really one thing that's not totally true. Sometimes you create um, products that are there all the time, like a pair of jeans, for instance, or we had programs at Philip Lynn that were this in a way. And so it was kind of interesting to see how this project, it was actually a big project for me at Philip Lynn. Like it was called the Seasonless Collection. So it never went on sale. We always had it in stock. And if anything you know, we always have key colors and we'd introduce seasonal colors later. And the importance of having that product that's your hero product that people come to over and over again. Um, and it doesn't lose its value, its brand value, its product value. Yes. I also just want to go back to something you said, which I think is so important, that a recruiter came to you, right? Because I think that this is another mm -hmm. thing, component of hiring that people maybe don't think about, that the way that people hire is they go poach. <laughs> they go and they find the person yes. who's already mm -hmm. like really good at their job and they go and give them a better opportunity. So I think that that's just um, a good thing to highlight because I've also you know, learn that as well. I've pretty much always been poached. I mostly have always been poached. So whether like my, someone took me with them to the new company or a recruiter, it wasn't until like starting kind of my own thing that I became the one sort of pitching myself versus a recruiter coming to me. Okay. So now I want to kind of like switch to like, so now you're doing your own thing. You like realize that there's an opportunity in the market, like no one who is representing these Latino owned brands you are Latina. You have the relationships now, right, that you've built over a period of well over a decade. Right? Yeah, it was like 13 years or some 12 years at that point. Now that you are have your own portfolio and you are product pushing, right, uh, <laughs> the brands that you work for, what are retailers, and this is obviously a really complicated question, but like what do retailers look for? And I think this is, <laughs> you know, I want to... For all the brands out there, you know, founders listening who are maybe doing their own sales, right? Like, yeah, let's start there because I have like A, B, and C <laughs> point to that question. But like, what are retailers, like what gets them excited, I guess? There are so many points to that. But I think the simplest, most like macro way I can answer that is they want something they don't already have. Okay. So how are you making a difference? Maybe we'll go into your sub items after that because there's so much <laughs> there. But they just want, they, yeah, they have to have a point of difference. Okay. But that's interesting because I feel like, yes, like we're always taught as brands, like what's your differentiation point, right? Like what makes you unique? Mm -hmm. What do you bring into the category? But at the same time, you have to have something that people understand. For example, I make soap. So soap has been around for millions of years <laughs> or thousands of years. Right. So people understand it, but like there has to be something that sets my soap apart. Otherwise, like who cares? So tell me about that. 
No, that's right. You're, that's a good point. You can't be so far out that you're like introducing a totally novel concept. You can, and people do, but it might take you longer to get into the stores because they need to understand what you're offering more. But within like the landscape, within the department, you know, of let's call it the beauty department at Nordstrom, what do they sell at Nordstrom? Mm -hmm. They have makeup, they have skincare, they have perfume, they have soap, like mm -hmm. obviously other things. So where are you within that landscape? Mm -hmm. And then how do you find your niche? And how can you offer something different that those other brands already in the store don't have? Right. And so as a face of many brands, how... I'm trying to think of how to ask you this where you don't have to reveal your deepest secrets. But I'm tr what I want to understand <laughs> is what is your secret sauce to pitching, right? Or to like cold outreach or, or mm -hmm. like how much cold outreach do you do versus relationships you already have? It's a good question too. Um, yeah, that is a good question. I do a lot of cold outreach, to be honest, or maybe it's warm outreach where I've worked with mm -hmm. them before, but not super, super closely. My like strongest relationships are actually with big retailers because, mm. because I've been like the sales director, higher positions. I'm usually working with like the higher ups and the executives. So I know those people who, who don't move around as much too, because there's a lot of turnover in these buyer mm. positions. So it's a mix obviously of like that relationship building. And then I think the other part is timing. I sort of like very, and I can't even give away my secret sauce because I go on intuition here. Mm. I wait for the right time. I wait to the brands at a certain moment or something has happened where I can say, now is my time. I'm going to go in. Mm. Because if you go in, you kind of strike out. You have about three chances before you need to give it a real break until you start again. Because if you go to them too much too soon and they haven't bitten right away, they're going to ignore it mm -hmm. <laughs> for a while. So like, don't over pitch, I'd say. Okay. And point B here, how often, this is a question I used to get all the time. How often mm -hmm. do you follow up? Like in other words, like those three chances, what's the time distance between those? Depends on who, but I usually give it two weeks. Okay. Love that. Yes. Because I think a lot of people think that it's faster. <laughs> no, if anything, sometimes lately since COVID, honestly, and people are just slower to work, I give it like two months sometimes, especially if I know who the buyer is. Like I know how overwhelmed Nordstrom and Credo and Sephora buyers are. So I give them time. They're getting thousands of submissions all the time. So totally, I don't want to be the one constantly, you know, I know what I'm sending them is of value to them. So hopefully they see it too. And when they're ready, they're going to get back to me. Yes. The real question right here is what is in <laughs> your, and obviously divulge as much or as little as you feel comfortable. Yeah. What is in your cold outreach email or your email? I guess not, you don't have to tell me what is in it, but like, let me just like, you know, lead the witness here. I learned the hard way that the best, the most success was, came from like the shorter the email. Short. Don't write too much. Yes. And link or attach relevant documents and show your personality. Yes. So personality and product information, that's really all you need. <laughs> yes. And short. I just want to emphasize short. brief. No one has time to read long emails. Mm -mm. <laughs> I honestly probably write four sentences, like maybe six, four to six sentences. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes two. Sometimes if I already know them really well, like, hey, I, I'm repping this brand now. I, I love it. Here's like a link to the brand deck. Like take a look and let me know if you're interested. That's it. Yeah. Because I used to make the rookie mistake of when I first started in sales of telling the whole life story and thinking that like this is what you're judging me on, but actually no one has time for that. So mm -hmm. again, like is it really just this product is like branding 
it is, mm-hmm. there's like a niche about it or there's, you know, something, some point of differentiation about it. You know, cause I feel like so many, they must be jaded, right? Like, I mean, if I worked yeah. for like Sephora, I would be jaded after seeing like a million pitch decks and presentations. So like what gets them out of that? <laughs> um, well, one, I would say if you have the capacity and the information to send them product, just send them a box of product and follow up with an email. Because what's going to get them out of it is seeing the product and hopefully trying it. But other than that, the other importance of building the brand is kind of the credibility. So whether it's press or customer reviews or it's like a referral through someone who's someone who knows someone, that is the other thing that will get standouts. They want to know if people love the brand. Like why? What are they using? Does this Mm -hmm. work? If you're making claims, are they true? Mm -hmm. Would you Mm -hmm. buy it again? That's kind of the thing that they're looking for. And I'm assuming that also kind of times in with like your intuition about timing, right? Like, okay, this big article came out. Now's a good time to like pitch this brand, right? Yep, exactly. So let's talk about brand integrity, right? Because a lot of brands out there use places like Fair or like Bulletin, or I'm not even sure what else is out there, to be honest with you, because I've never used them. There's tons now. There's Mm -hmm. tons. So you come from like the world of like brand integrity of like these premium legacy brands, luxury brands, you know, what you first said was like, you had to say no a lot, right? You have to say no, you can't just let your product be everywhere. So like, tell me about that. Well, first I'll say about the, the wholesale platforms or marketplaces as they're called. I have a love hate relationship with them because one, they're trying to take the place of me, but I've actually referred some people to them when I've had to say no, because that's the simplest option. But I think the downside is there's no control. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a little bit of control. You can put certain measures into place if you know to ask these questions about like Mm -hmm. zip code protections or Mm. states or regions you can turn off if you don't want them there. But relationships are super important with stores these days. Mm -hmm. And if you're not like having a touch point with them, cultivating that relationship, there's no loyalty to your brand. Mm -hmm. And then there's no controlling of distribution. So you might have two stores next to each other on the same street that end up with the product and then they get mad and you're going to get a mad email and then you'll probably <laughs> lose both stores and then you have to start fresh because they don't want to carry the brand somebody else. And then they're like, you didn't protect this. Um, I just think you don't need robots for everything. You need people. <laughs> so so um, in this case, I would say stick to the person if you can. And if you're just starting off and like distribution is not really a thing, and you have no stores, like, and you need to start somewhere. I understand starting there. They offer, yeah, they offer great incentives to the retailers more than the brands, in my opinion. Free, free shipping, credit terms. So yes. it does break through this barrier in a way where you might have someone try your brand because you're on the platform and because they're incentivized to use it. Yeah, I can't offer that. So sorry, I can't pay your <laughs> bill for you and <laughs> like give you credit terms. <laughs> right. Uh, another thing that I have, you know, I always like to tell brands, like there's more of you guys than there are like sales agents. You're outnumbered. Like you said at the beginning, you can't help everybody, right? Yeah. Um, not every brand is going to have a sales agent because it's, mm-hmm. there's just more brands and there are people like you that have your, you know, expertise in your relationships. So the platforms are good for that, right? Because then people can get started on their own. But I actually, what you said, um, I think is so funny, like the angry email. Can you tell me about these angry emails that you get? (laughs) Oh my God. So, you know, I've made the mistake a couple of times. It's mostly like, how could you let the store 10 miles away carry the same products? And I'm like, it's 10 miles away. Sometimes it's legit if it's like really close by, but I'm like very careful and I don't let people carry it in the same neighborhood. But I also give them a heads up. I'm like, hey, you haven't ordered in six months, so... If you're not going to order anymore, 
I'm going to open up the region because we have to. Yeah. So those angry ones about like me not being careful with the brand yeah. are a little irksome because I try to be quite careful, but I'm a human yes. and I make mistakes too. So uh, yeah, I, I definitely know those emails. You've seen a couple of them. Oh yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Yeah. And yeah, like, you know, that store like is like subpar. We are this, you know, and everyone, everyone's basically trying to protect their brand integrity is what it comes down to. Right. Yes. Like stores mm-hmm. included. So I want to just ask like a brand uh, perspective question. Like if a brand is going to go out there and try to do their own sales, what are the mm-hmm. things that they need to be asking of the store? What are like the top questions? You know, obviously my, my first one is like payment terms, right? <laughs> but like what, mm-hmm. are, what are the top questions that a brand should be asking? If they're going to do their own sales, what mm-hmm. are those questions that they should ask to make sure that they, first of all, look like they know what they're doing, yeah. right? And actually protect themselves. Well, I think there's different sets of questions for the major retailers versus the boutiques. There Mm -hmm. are a lot of questions you should ask with the major retailers, which, you know, we can only scratch the surface here and I'm not going (laughs) to let it all away. But payment terms for sure is one. Routing guidelines, what else are they going to require to do business with you? Mm -hmm. Because there are a lot of other costs that come on the back end that you might not be aware of. And to protect your margins. Yeah, it's there's a lot. Know that you can negotiate pricing too. Mm. Don't let them just tell you this is what it is. You mm-hmm. have a say. You have some things you can negotiate. Mm-hmm. You have some things you can't negotiate. So figure out what they are. And then I think generally you want to know where your product's going to be placed. Mm. Like where in the store, next to what brands. Um, make sure that it makes sense. Mm-hmm. And then you also want to know about marketing. Like how are they going to support your brand? Mm-hmm. Are people going to know you carry it? Is there going to be an email announcement, social how are you going to help me, like help you to sell the brand and have a successful partnership here? Yes. All great questions. And I love the point about negotiation, right? Because stores will always just say, this is what it is. Okay, no, mm-hmm. they, that's your ask. I'm going to tell you yeah. <laughs> what we can do. Super great information. Before we move on to this like rapid fire round, I just want to ask you one more question again, like for brands, because this is a question I get all the time is how do I find the boutiques? Like, how do I find the stores? So going out to your favorite little neighborhoods, even when you're traveling, like I go on vacation and I'm not working, but I'm constantly working because I'll like go find the cute stores and I'm like, oh, I have to add it to my list. Or in most cases at this point, there's everyone has no paleta or some brand in it of the towns <laughs> that I go to. So I try to pop in, but also try to find brands that you admire and you'd want to sit next to and mm-hmm. see if they put their stockist page online. Mm-hmm. You know, I kind of say don't do that as a brand, but some still do. Mm-hmm. And it's a really great resource to start building a list. Yeah, that's one great way. Press articles and who's like linking up to what kind of stores is a great way. Mm-hmm. It does kind of depend on what your product is and where it's positioned yeah. on how I answer this question a little bit. But you could even do a Google and a Yelp search if you're like, you know, luxury fashion boutique for Des Moines, Iowa. Right. And then what comes up. And then there are directories like on the trade shows, they'll sometimes say what stores come to their show. Mm. So you can kind of see and then research all of those stores and start building your list. I love that last one. I used to do that when I worked in food and beverage. I would go to the trade show websites and then just like scour who was going to, who or who was exhibiting or, you know, yeah. Um, and that is such a great point. And I think it's just important for brands to know that there is no like 
just master Bible. Here's all the stores in the country because, you know, to your point, no. you know, people say like, I want to get my product into stores. And I'm like, what kinds of stores? They're not all the same, right? Like, right. what kinds of stores are we talking about? Are we talking about grocery stores? Are we talking about boutiques? Are we talking about retailers? Like, so really understanding your product, positioning, where it's going to live, like where the best opportunity is, I think is super important. And then it requires, like to your point, it requires the brands to go out and do some detective work, right? Like there is no just like buy this Bible. It's not like the yellow pages where you just like, let me just go get it and then like call everybody. So no, like you're going on vacation, you're going to these cities, you're looking at the stores, you're like sizing them up, you're looking at what brands they carry. Like that's work, right? Like it takes work to determine which store is like the right store, you know, for your brand. So that's such a, I just want to make that point for everyone listening. Like, it's not easy, y'all. <laughs> okay. There's it, no like easy, easy way. Yeah. No, you just don't shortcut it really. Like do the, yes. do a little work behind if you don't know it already, because it's going to make a big difference in your business. Yes. And also do not, and I know that you already doing, I'm talking to the brands here. It's like, don't send mass emails that clearly are not personalized. Right. Like, no, because people will just like every email, like when you send emails, you are writing to a person. Yes. Right? Yeah. It takes time for sure. But honestly, one trick I'll say is I create a template Mm -hmm. and then I just swap out relevant information so I can copy paste and re-put in. And then, so I take sessions where I just rapid fire email out because if I need to get a hundred emails in an hour, (laughs) I can. Yes. With my template. Absolutely. You have a template, but you're customizing it like per person. Yes. I'm customizing it per person. Filling in like, we love your shop. I might mention what brands they carry or like, we'd love Mm -hmm. something personal so they know you've researched, but like a lot of the other words are the same. So save yourself the time from typing them and just like copy and paste it and replace the personalized info. Yes. I love Gmail templates for this reason. Like you can store your, your templates. Mm Mm-hmm. Sorry, one last technical question before I move to the rapid fire. It's like, how do you keep all of your contacts and your like your leads and the conversations and the pipeline organized? Like, what are the tools that you use as a person that's managing multiple brands and like hundreds of stores? I use Monday.com. It's like a project management tool. Mm-hmm. So that way I can update what last date that I interacted with them were. You know, I have the email stored. Um, you can build it however you want it to look. And I can utilize it better than I currently do, but it does keep me organized and I can know. I keep all the stores I say no to as well because I might want to say yes to them later or have a different brand for them. Mm-hmm. And so I have notes like if they weren't a qualified lead for one brand, maybe they are for somebody else. So yeah, just the Google Sheets works too, but some kind of spreadsheet or project management tool is usually mm-hmm. like the best way. Yeah. If you don't have like a proper CRM, which can be expensive or, or tricky to use. So I use monday.com as my CRM. I've never used Monday.com, but I know people that love it. And I've seen it all over the subway. Yes, <laughs> all the they're ads. advertising everywhere. It looks, it looks great to use. And I'm, I'm a big fan of color coding. So I love that about it too. Mm-hmm. And it automates. It can automate emails. And oh. Ads. Yeah, so okay. it helps in a few different ways. <laughs> okay. So it, how is it different than HubSpot? Uh, well, it's more than just a CRM kind of tool too. It does all kinds of other things. You can build all different types of sheets, but... It's similar to HubSpot in that sense Mm -hmm. um, for this purpose, yeah. Good to know. All right. I know that all of this is super valuable. I hope that now people understand (laughs) (laughs) how the game works, uh, what retailers are looking for, how, you know, protecting brand integrity, so much good stuff. But I want to like now end with some just rapid fire questions about you personally. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) number one, best piece of advice you've ever received? Slow down. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes. It's simple, but it, 
wow, it applies to so many things. <laughs> oh my God, I need that advice. You just you're you're speaking to me right now because yeah, yes, it's it's okay to get done, and you're gonna do a better job probably. But just slow slowing down. Oh my God, I need like a sign above my head that says that. Okay. <laughs> okay. okay. Number two is what does success look like to you? Oh, I could have answered that in so many different ways, depending on what time of life you ask me the question. Today, it's still a little hard to answer, but I think it means just creating a life where I'm surrounded by people and projects and things that I love and bring me joy and like a, a balance in life. You know, like I actually love going to stores that is work while I'm vacationing. Um, so hopefully part of your work is something that you truly love and it's not necessarily that work life. I do believe in work-life balance, of course, but I think you should just really love what you're doing. So I try to do that. Yes, that is such a good point. I'm still trying to figure out how can I create a life where I just sit in nature? Like, what's the job for that? <laughs> that's what success looks like to me. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, but no, it's so true. Yes. Okay, this one, feel free to go as in-depth as you want, but what does your perfect day look like? Well, I have to start off with coffee early in the morning. I get up really early. I get up well, I'm in LA and I work with a lot of East Coast stores and brands, so or in Europe actually. So I get up at like 5:45 every day. Oh my god. Is that natural or do you use an alarm? Natural. <gasps> wow. Well, I have sort of an alarm that started in the form of my dog who wants to eat at 5:45 a.m. <laughs> um, so now we just naturally get up at that time. So I feed him, I have to have my coffee, and I like to read a little bit in like the trades or the news just to know what's going on first. Mm -hmm. I do a little bit of either like journaling or to-doing so I can like sort of set my day. Uh, and then around eight o'clock, I start like actually working, working. And then I like to take a block in the middle of the day because I start sometimes like pretty early on things and have like a long lunch, mm. maybe like two hours in the middle of the day. Mm -hmm. And then I go back to work. And then I just like, I try not to like, this is not always true, but I try to end work by five o'clock. And then sometimes I go back after if I need to, but I like to cook a lot. So if I get to like cook my meal and then just enjoy time with, you know, my boyfriend and my dog and mm -hmm. spending time outside, I have to make sure I get a couple of walks in there. Mm -hmm. Like I break up my workday by taking some 20, 30 minute walks, like at least twice a day. It's like coffee, nature, food, and important people. So some mix of that is sort of like a perfect day. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I want to also stop working by five. I have not, I'm not there yet, but <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. It's so hard. One day. What, yeah. There are times when you can't, of course, it's not always true for me at all. Sometimes I work yeah. literally all day and I might stop working at five, but I work every day. Like I work on Saturday and Sunday too. <laughs> oh my God. Yes. We need to stop this. Okay. We're going to start an accountability group on the side for that. Um, I know. <laughs> uh, it's rough. So, okay. Lastly here. So what do you want to be remembered for? Hopefully I can help like pave the way for some small brands to be the next big ones. You know, I would like to be someone who finds brands that have value and are going to be out there for like centuries or decades at least and become something mm -hmm. big and on the shelves and that you remember. So I might not have the brands, but I hope that I can find those of value and help them be prepared with what they need to get into these retailers, to have the products they need, to keep it moving and keep evolving and mm -hmm. creating that space, making room for their voices 
and just changing retailers' minds a little bit about what they should and can carry. Mm, yes. So impact. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I love that. And I actually have a fifth question, which I normally ask to brands, but mm-hmm. I want to ask it to you anyway, which is what is the thing or is there a thing that you wish you would have known before starting your own company? Yeah. There's like so many things I feel like <laughs> that I'm like, what is the thing? It's just, <laughs> you have to work every day. <laughs> yeah, I think yes. I'm like, wait a second. You think you have like all this freedom because you're working for yourself, but you're working for yourself. So you have to like, yes, kind of put as much as you put in, you will get back. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot more to it. It's not as like glamorous maybe as it sounds. Totally. Totally. <laughs> so true. Yeah. Such a good point. People are like, yeah, yeah I quit my nine to five. So now I can work 24 seven, you know, <laughs> I saw, I forgot what brand that was that you put that on Instagram something. I was like, yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's accurate. The accuracy. Yeah. Yes, totally. Mm-hmm. Well, Priscilla, thank you so much. This is so insightful. And I think it's going to be a huge learning for a lot of people and can hopefully get them started on like taking those next steps, you know, because there's just so many brands, everyone wants to be in stores, right? Not mm-hmm. everyone can have a sales agent or product pusher or VP <laughs> of sales, you know, and so just understanding how this really works and what they need to do next, I think is just super helpful. So thank you so much for sharing all of those juicy details about what you do. Of course, I hope I hope it's helpful for sure. Just, I guess, to tell all brands like, don't give up, keep trying and just find your little niche and things will happen. Visit nopalera.co to pick up your favorite self-care items for yourself and your friends and family. Join our mailing list to be the first to hear about new products and exclusive promotions and follow us on IG at nopalera.co. And if you are an entrepreneur looking for more real talk and resources, you can join my entrepreneurial newsletter from my personal website, sandraliliavelasquez.com and be the first to know when I host workshops and masterclasses. Everything is linked below in the show notes. Stay resilient.